Texas has an outsized reputation for lots of things. For hot link sausages and breakfast tacos gilded with salsa verde. For six-man high school football and accordion-driven Tejano music. Not many people would count grape growing and winemaking among signature products in the state. But you, gravy listeners, y'all aren't most people. Here at Gravy, we know a story of a burly Texas grapevine that grows hearty and tough. This is a story about a Texan and his vineyards. A story about how a Southerner saved the European wine industry from collapse. The French awarded this Texan their Order of Agricultural Merit. It was a Legion of Honor award, and it was like, uh, it's French, Agricole de Merit, something, I'm probably saying it wrong. My French ain't that good. You're listening to Gravy. 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 Stories of the changing American South told through the foods we eat and the drinks we drink. We're a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, and I'm John T. Edge, your host. Today, a story with its roots in the grape arbors of Central Texas, a story of agricultural triumph. To tell it, here's reporter and Texan, Caitlin Pierce. This Texan story begins with grapes. Grandpa, what do you got? I have some grape jelly. This is my family. You like grape jelly? And that is my family's famous grape jelly. My stepdad Jerry feeds it to my niece and nephew, Hazel and Henry. Big spoonfuls of the sticky stuff. Well, this is grape jelly that we pick the grapes off the vines and we squashed them and got the juice out and cooked them and made the jelly. We've made this jelly for years from our neighbor's Mustang grapes. They're too sour to eat right off the vine, but with cups and cups of sugar and a little pectin, they make really good jelly. (laughs) First, we cook down the grapes and strain out the skin. Then we pour the dark purple liquid into jars. As it cools, we hear the pop of the lids sealing shut. I love this. So I was used to having grapes where I grew up in the Texas Hill Country. But in the past few years, my mom and stepdad started going on trips to taste Texas wine. I wasn't so sure about that. I live in New York City now, date a sommelier, and have become, well, kind of a wine snob. My mom raved to me about the Texas Cab Francs and Tempranillos, but I just didn't believe her. I mean, wine from Texas? But it turns out, as is always the case, my mom was right. And without one Texan viticulturist, the wines I love from France, Italy, Spain, Germany, you name it, might not even exist today. You can see how these get a little crazy too, but like what you want to do is have a main trunk and like I'm doing cutting off all the little stragglers. This is Ross Hull. He's the manager at the Thomas Fulney Munson Memorial Vineyard in Denison, Texas. It's a few hours drive north of Dallas, near the Oklahoma border. Ross has short gray hair and glasses. He wears jeans with worn brown work boots and a short sleeve denim shirt that says Grayson College. The day I met him, he was pruning his grapevines. What you want to do is have a main trunk and then you want to have your cordons. And so, like, anything below, you know, I want to cut it off as close to the trunk as I can. In fact, Texas has a rich history with viticulture. 
which is the growing and keeping of vineyards. Ross Hole's vineyard is a memorial to Thomas Volney Munson. He's a Texan who offered his Texas vine as a solution to a crisis in Europe nearly 200 years ago. But we'll get to that later. Munson was an accomplished horticulturist, obsessed with the process of growing grapes. And Ross Hull continues with Munson's work in a way. And pe- a lot of people, it's funny because I was the same way. When you first teach people to prune, they're like, ooh, I'm hurting the vine, and they'll just want to cut little pieces. But I get in here, and it's a battle, you know, because they'll bite back, and my arms have got scratches all over them. But you can't really over prune because it just makes them more vigorous. Grapes will only grow on new shoots from the vine, so Hull has to cut off last year's shoots. This is exactly what Munson did, too. He spent a lot of time in his vineyard getting to know the different vines. And he created his own classification system for grape species. The research and experimenting he did on grapes in the late 1800s still forms the basis of what we know about North American grapes and how they grow today. He actually wrote the book on American grapes. Do you have your copy of Foundations of American Grape Culture here? Yes, I do. Can I? I'd like to see it. Sure. Right here. And if you're not into grapes, you would find this very boring reading. But uh, even to this day, breeders and, and a lot of people that grow grapes use his book. You can see I've got things highlighted here that I'll come back and I've got them tagged where I'll use, use them for reference. But he just—he goes into great detail. This man was really a, a scientist, and I mean, and he—you can't really imagine how he could have done all this in a lifetime, really. You know. The vineyard that Holm manages is part of Grayson College's program on viticulture and enology, the study of wine. The college started the vineyard in 1974 to study the hybrid grapevines that Munson created while living in this region of Texas. They use the actual descendants of Munson's vines to do it. Hull also mails out cuttings of Munson's hybrids to those who want to grow their own. He gets requests from big wineries like Gallo, as well as from small hobbyist grape growers. He's always loved gardening, but he never imagined he'd end up in this job. He's worked at the college for 35 years. And uh, I was electrician in maintenance for part of that time, and then... I got to know the guy that worked here since I worked out the college, and we became friends. And he kind of, you know, turned me on to wine and taught me about Munson. I, I would come over here and eat lunch with him, and, and I learned about it that way. And, and I, just, I found it really interesting. And when the job came open, I thought, boy, I'd love to do that. That job was to run the whole show, to be in charge of the vineyard. Five acres planted with 650 vines. I kept eating lunch here even after the the guy left. And when Dr. Renfro called me and he said, well, you got the job if you want it. And I was just, you know, elated. I was like, yes, because that's my dream job, you know. I visited Hull in the winter, so the vines in the vineyard are bare. I follow him through one of the rows of vines, and he points to a big hole in the ground. And you see, I, I have a lot of trouble with armadillos out here. I got an armadillo trap set out over here. I've been catching them. They like to dig at the base of the roots of the vines and for bugs and insects, and they tunnel up under there and can kill the vine. Oh, that's a real Texas wine problem right yeah. there. <laughs> see? Oh, man. To create his hybrids, 
Munson crossbred the best of two different grape species. Most of what he was trying to do was say, if you live in Texas and you want to grow grapes, I've found this is the best way to do it. This is the best kind of grapes. You know, he hybridized like 300 varieties. There are more than 50 different grape species in the world. But unless you're an expert on the topic, you've probably only tasted one of them. Vitis vinifera. It's the European species. Vitis vinifera is basically table grapes, like red and white grapes. It's also common wine varieties like Chardonnay, Merlot, and Cabernet Sauvignon. The Vitis vinifera species produce delicious, sweet grapes. But the vine isn't very rugged. Because of that, Munson often bred Vitis vinifera with hardy and wild American grape vines. And of those 300 varieties that Munson created, about 60 of them are still known to exist today. Hull showed me one of these hybrids. He calls them gorillas. These are huge. Yeah, they're monsters. What's amazing about like this vine, it's pruned every year just like th those were. And then all this growth is one year. And his vines grow anywhere from 40 to 60 feet sometimes. And they're really prolific. That's why in his book, if you read that a lot of his vines, he, he recommends long arm pruning instead of like, you know, they do in Europe with uh, four foot cordons. You know, you've got cordons that are 20, 30 foot long. Yeah, these are more like trees. Than well, you know, they've got wild in them because he bred uh, some viniferas with wild and and when you get these wild ones they're they're just you know more vigorous growth and and uh, they're hard to hard to prune. Let's look at Munson's work in context. He started his grape research in the 1860s. Origin of a Species by Charles Darwin was published in 1859. And Gregor Mendel's work on plant genetics and hybridization was not taken seriously until the 1900s. Munson's work was ahead of its time. And he was grape-obsessed. Munson estimated that he traveled a total of 75,000 miles around the U.S. looking for different grape species. That's the equivalent of circling the earth three times. Munson traveled all over Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, Missouri, and he did this on horseback or wagon, and uh, he would just go all around, and when he'd find some vines, you know, he'd take him some cuttings and take them back, experiment them with them and play with them. While Munson was becoming an expert on viticulture, Europe was going through an agricultural disaster, the phylloxera epidemic. This phylloxera is a very tiny louse that would eat through the roots of the Vitis vinifera grapevine. So the vines were dying in mass. The scientists in Europe couldn't find anything to stop it. Can you show me a rootstock that's similar to the ones that saved Europe? Just I've to see what it's got like. one, yeah, okay. up here. They're the biggest and the baddest. <laughs> and that's one of his hybrids? Yeah. Okay. The grapes aren't necessarily that good as far as eating or making wine, but that, that's not what it was meant for anyway. It was, it was meant for rootstock. Coming up, how Thomas Volney Munson's tough Texan vines saved the European vineyards. But first, here's that donor music. Catfish is a delicacy often associated with deep south states like Alabama and Mississippi and Georgia. But did you know that catfish is also raised in North Carolina? 
I'm Rob Mayo, president of Carolina Classics Catfish, and been here in the Aden, North Carolina area for 30 years now. Here on the North Carolina coastal plain, and we're close to the Gulf Stream, and that warms this area, gives us a very temperate climate, and then it's really perfect to grow catfish. We realized that quality not only meant flavor and the freshest fish to market, it also meant being environmentally friendly and using resources wisely. So we raise fish with no antibiotics used in the process ever, no harsh farm chemicals. What you get is an, an all-natural product that's great to eat. When you next visit a Whole Foods, look for the Carolina Classics Catfish Fillets. Your purchase supports sustainable and environmentally responsible catfish farming, just as Whole Foods supports this podcast. Eat real food from Whole Foods Market. Hi, it's Melissa. And if you're looking for another great podcast from the South, then you have to check out No Small Endeavor, produced by our friends at Great Feeling Studios and PRX. Each episode, award-winning professor and Nashville native Lee C. Camp merges the worlds of philosophy, theology, the arts, and more to ask the question, how can we live a good life while nourishing the soul? Plus, it's the only show I know that features everyone from legendary actor and filmmaker Rob Reiner to Southern activist and author Anthony Ray Hinton. So go ahead. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and tell them Gravy said hey. Now, back to our story of a Texan viticulturist who pulled off an agricultural feat. He saved the European wine industry from collapse. Here's Caitlin Pierce. Sherry McLeroy wrote a book about Thomas Volney Munson. It's co-authored by Dr. Renfro the founder of the Viticulture and Enology program at Grayson College. He's the one who hired Ross Hull to manage the Munson Vineyard. I visited Sherry at her home in Alito, Texas, just a few hours from the Munson Vineyard. The first thing I wanted to see was her backyard. Just rocks. Or a rock. See, it's just a big ledge of it right here. This is uh, the Duck Creek Formation, which is about... 90 to 100 million years old. And right here, in this seemingly barren limestone rock, is where she planted a Munson vine. These are my Levanto vines, and when they're in full swing, they just pretty much take up this whole area of the fence. It's, they're quite uh, abundant with their leaves. Um, and they um, have a, usually have a pretty good yield of grapes. Unlike a lot of plants, grapevines actually grow better and make better grapes when they are planted in poor soil. So the rocky limestone of central Texas is grapevine heaven. And the soil is similar to a lot of that in the wine-growing regions of France, like Chablis, Loire, and Champagne. But just because the European vines, the Vitis vinifera, would like Texas soil, doesn't mean they liked everything about Texas. Because the old world grapes, the Vinifera grapes, um, are, are not immune to many of America's grape diseases, the worst of which, of course, was phylloxera, which is, was a little tiny louse about the size of a grass seed. 
and it will um, just eat the the leaves and then eventually the roots of, of grapevines. And vinifera plants have very thin roots. In this country, because phylloxera is native to this country, the grapevines here developed literally a thick skin around their root. In the 1860s, an American vine called Vitis labrusca was sent to Europe, and it was also infested with phylloxera, that tiny louse that loves to eat those grapevine roots. And this little pest spread throughout the French vineyards. It was devastating for the European wine industry. At the time, the economy of France was reliant on Vitis vinifera. Before phylloxera, it was estimated that France was producing a billion to a billion and a half gallons of wine each year. And it just about wiped them out. Two-thirds of Europe's vineyards were destroyed by phylloxera. One-third of France's vineyards were never even replanted, lost, and they were never replanted because it was going to cost so much. This period of time became known as the Great French Wine Blight. It's been compared to the Irish potato famine in that it moved through one single crop. In 1875, almost one-sixth of the entire budget of France came from a tax on the grape harvest. That's right, one-sixth of the budget. Just five years later, almost 200 million acres of vineyards were destroyed in France alone. So what was there to do? Remember that thick, rugged Texan rootstock that Rasshole showed us in the vineyard? So when the French began trying to figure out what to do about this, one of the things that they always came back to was grafting onto American rootstock, which had those nice, thick skids. The French were not crazy about that for several reasons. Of course, the phylloxera came from here to begin with. That didn't make us popular with them. And they felt that most American grape varieties had a really nasty, foxy taste that they didn't like, and they were afraid their vines would have the same taste. But the way grafting works, a grapevine can grow on any grape stock. It's the upper part of the vine that's, that's the important part. That's, where, that's the type of grape that you get. Back in the Munson Vineyard, Hull showed me how a vine graft works. Okay, if you see this bottom part, see how it's got wax all over it? Yeah. And this knot right here? Mm -hmm. This is where the graft actually took place. The root at the bottom of the vine is a thick Texas root that the phylloxera can't chew through. And that root is sliced off and joined with the top of a European Vitis vinifera vine. And then this would have been like a Cabernet Sauvignon or Merlot or Chardonnay. And you graft it and you put this wax on it. And you don't want this to grow. All you want it to do is, is be roots to feed the vine. And then this vine is a different kind of vine. The French sent out a bunch of scientists to look for a solution for phylloxera. One of the first came back with rootstock from the northeastern United States. But when they tried it in France, it didn't grow in their soil. They sent out even more scientists. One of them was Pierre Viala from the Languedoc region of France. He was already pen pals with Munson. Viala headed down to Texas to look for the limestoney soil that was more similar to the soil in France. And he ended up in Denison with T.V. Munson. Now, this next part gets a little technical, 
So we're going to bring in an expert. Thomas Voley Munson was one of the great viticulturists of the 19th and early 20th century. Dr. David Shields is a professor at the University of South Carolina and an expert on foods native to the American South, which makes him a big fan of Munson because of all the work Munson had done to classify and hybridize grapevines. He was able to suggest the varieties that should be shipped over and used as grafting stock to save the French wine industry. There were two varieties of rootstock sent over first, the Mustang grape, which my family uses to make jelly, and the Herbermont grape, which is one of Munson's hybrids. He was sufficiently well-connected at that juncture uh, to actually be able to organize a mass uprooting of wild and cultivated grapes. The Mustangs were wild, the Herbermonts were cultivated, and their shipment to Paris and to Bordeaux and to the other winemaking regions of France for the great effort to save the dying vineyards. Nowadays, when Ross Hole at the Munson Vineyard sends out parts of the grapevine to winemakers and gardeners, he'll just send out a small piece, a cutting. This cutting can take a few months to root and then will need a few years to grow and produce grapes. But in France during this epidemic, they didn't have that kind of time. Because the pace of the disease was so quick, they needed something to graft their established vines onto. They could not wait. At the time, Texas had a lot of vineyards and a pretty big wine industry. But suddenly, the rootstocks on their vines were worth more than the grapes that the vines would produce later. So entire vineyards in Texas were uprooted. The rootstocks were sold to French winemakers. They were baled and shipped to France by train from Texas to the East Coast. And from there, by boat across the Atlantic Ocean. And this time, it worked. Munson was the essential figure in that period at the end of the 19th century, the last half of the 19th century, that had the knowledge, had the connections, had the will, and had enough practical knowledge of the actual growing habit of these North American grapevines that he could assist the scientific community and the viticultural community, the actual winemakers, in a way that was decisive. Munson continued his research, and after the initial triage of the European vineyards, he found that a different rootstock, Vitis riparia, would actually work better for grafting. It made the vine even more productive, and Vitis riparia became the most common rootstock species in Europe today. Almost all of Europe's grapevines are still grafted to some variation of American rootstock based on Munson's solution. You know, I'd say... 96% or so. Munson was recognized for saving the European wine industry. The French government sent a delegation to Texas to award him the French Legion of Honor Chevalier du Merit Agricole. And even though many American vines were pulled up and sent to Europe, the wine industry here was still thriving. But then, America had a catastrophe of its own. Prohibition. 
prohibition sort of destroyed the American wine industry, and when it was reconsolidated, it was done sort of the image of the French and turned its back on the native grapes. We have a kind of vicious circle, you know, people who grew up drinking good Cabernet Sauvignon, good Sauvignon Blanc, have their notions of taste standard entirely framed by that. And the taste of other kinds of grapes foreign to that world tend to get categorized as, well, that's not good. In Europe, and especially in France, there are a lot of laws that dictate how wines can be made and what types of vines can be grown. But not here in the U.S., So the opportunities are endless. Although not many wineries currently use American grape varieties, a few have popped up around the South. And Grayson College will open a winery later this year to start experimenting with Munson's hybrids. So all of Munson's hard work grafting and growing vines is still alive today. But the true beauty of Munson's work is that it spans centuries. So without Munson's work, Truthfully, uh, they would have all been lost. So the world would have lost out on many, many generations of fine uh, wines. This is Dr. Roy Renfro. We heard about him earlier in the story. His life's work has been to continue Munson's legacy. He started the viticulture and enology program at Grayson College. He hired Ross Holt to manage the Munson Vineyard. He restored Munson's house in Denison, Texas. And he co-authored the book on Munson's life. Suffice to say, Dr. Renfro is the one living person who knows most about the contributions of this man to the wine industry. So when Renfro went to France to see how Munson's work saving the vineyards had long outlived him, it blew his mind. I was invited to a vineyard that still had uh, the rootstocks growing with the French varieties grafted to them. And uh, that was just the most moving experience to actually be able to see and to touch (laughs) these Texas rootstocks that were still growing and being used and still producing wines annually of world class. Back at the Munson Vineyard, I was also wondering, can I take some cuttings? Yeah. Yeah? I asked Ross Hole if I could take some cuttings of Munson's hybrids so I could try my own hand at growing these vines. Well, I've got some in the fridge I could give you. Cool. And I brought them back to my little niece and nephew, the ones who love grape jelly. And they're wrapped up in uh, Mort's newspaper. Okay. Because you don't want them to dry out. The Munson hybrid cuttings are in a dark closet in warm soil, and they're starting to grow roots. We'll plant them in my brother's backyard in Dallas, Texas, and a new generation will grow up knowing the taste of Munson's grapes and the story behind them. Thank you to Bushy Creek Vineyards, Grayson College, and the Thomas Volney Munson Memorial Vineyard. For more information on this episode, we encourage you to visit the SFA website. That's southernfoodways.org. There you'll find gravy footnotes about the music and text and other resources. Music for this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions and Jason Shaw. 
Gravy's theme music is and forever will be by Wendell Patrick. Our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam, and to our intern, Robin Miniter. Sarah Reynolds produced this episode. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy, but first. Bartender Joy Perini comes from a long line of bootleggers. The New Jersey native landed in Louisville, Kentucky in 1978, after more than a decade of mixing drinks in the Virgin Islands. In 2016, Perini became the first woman inducted into the Kentucky Bourbon Hall of Fame. SFA recorded an interview with her at Jack's Lounge in 2008 for our Louisville Barroom Culture Project. There are the purists that say bourbon should only be drunk straight, but there is a whole lot of people who just don't like the way bourbon tastes the first time they taste it. And these are basically the people that I try to reach. To hear more about Perini and Louisville cocktail culture, visit southernfoodways.org. While you're online, please consider becoming a member. Membership dollars support all of our work, including oral histories and this gravy podcast. Coming up on the next gravy, we go global to explore the consumption of slow-smoked pork barbecue in the Holy Land. Yeah, that Holy Land. We'll also grapple with our barbecue union back home here in the American South. I don't do a lot of the things that someone that's more Jewishly oriented does. A no, lot it's of, not Jewishly oriented, it's more observant. Jewishly observant. I am I not that. Jewishly <laughs> observant. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm John T. Edge for the Southern Feedways Alliance. As you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war. <laughs>